If you have your Bibles with you, grab them and turn with me once again this morning to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. The visions that God gave Zechariah one night over 2,500 years ago have filled our imaginations and hopefully our hearts over these past five weeks. They are visions that have reminded God's people, uh, both then in the 6th century and us here today, that God sees, right? That His emissaries are always on the move and always at work, and there is much more going on than we alone can see. That's what we were reminded through the first vision. And then we were reminded that God will deal with His enemies. Justice will be done. God's presence brings about justice. Our presence as the church, as the craftsmen of God, in our ordinary ways, we bring about God's kingdom and justice. And then last week, God's vision for Jerusalem, for His presence among His people, is bigger and better and grander than we could have ever hoped. Well, today, as we move into vision number four in this eightfold vision that Zechariah is given, there's a shift. There is a change in perspective of sorts. As we move from, from what Yahweh is doing behind the scenes on earth amongst his people in time and space and in history to a scene that takes place in the courts of heaven on a whole nother plane of reality, though no less real. And of all the visions that Zechariah gives, we could say of all the chapters in the book of Zechariah, this chapter is the one that preachers like to preach. If you go looking for sermons on Zechariah, you won't find a lot of them on chapter 1. You won't find a lot of them on chapter 8. You won't find a lot of them on chapter 11. But you'll find a lot of them on Zechariah 3. Because here in Zechariah 3 is the whole message of the Bible. This is the good news that gathers us here today and every Lord's Day. This is the good news that must carry us out of this place today and into the world. It's good news that many of you, maybe most of you, maybe all of you have heard before, but it's good news that you and I need every single day. So let's listen in and let's be reminded of what we've been given I've joked with a couple this week as I've uh, been preparing that this passage kind of preaches itself. I could probably read it and just sit down, but I won't do that. I'll say a few things. If you're able, as we always do, if you would stand in honor of God's Word, Zechariah chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10, listen as I read. This is what Zechariah saw. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Measuring up. Have I done enough? Am I enough? Those are questions that we ask ourselves. We ask our own hearts. It's a significant aspect, I dare say, of all of our stories to one degree or another. Whether it's seeking to make your parents proud or proving to your boss that he didn't make a mistake, she didn't make a mistake in hiring you, or maybe showing your kids that you've got what it takes. It's a part of all of our stories. It's part of my story. One of the preacher's nightmares, like literal nightmares, like literal bad dreams that I have from time to time is being asked to speak and I don't have anything to say. I'm not prepared. Or, or saying that you're in charge of this or, or you're conducting this wedding and, and I don't have clothes to wear. I don't have the right clothes to wear. We are a driven people. We are an independent people. We are a prideful people. And this isn't just a modern day Western phenomenon. This is humanity, right? This is in our blood. This is in our nature. And it's toxic, spiritually speaking. Which is why the Lord gives Zechariah this vision to communicate to His people then and His people now. To realign our hearts with His provision of grace and our response to it. Two simple but life-giving truths that I want us to see and be reminded of this morning from this vision. This scene is all of our lives. And the first truth is this. You are not enough. You are not enough. It's, it stinks to hear that. I know it does, but it's the truth. You don't have what it takes, and you are helpless to get it on your own. 
Let me explain how this vision communicates that. The vision opens up by focusing on one figure, right? Not a fictionary figure, but a historical one. Joshua. Joshua the high priest. This is obviously not Joshua of Jericho fame. This is Joshua the son of Jehozadak. That's what Haggai 1 tells us. And he was the first high priest after the exile. Now, let me make sure this is established. I think most of us know this, but this is a small excursus. Jewish religion was based, was built around a ceremonial system of sacrifice and mediation provided by men who were descended from Aaron, who performed duties on behalf of God's people to restore a right relationship with Yahweh, right? So Joshua is an active and central figure in the life of God's people. And he's a central figure in the rebuilding efforts of the time. So people would have recognized Joshua as being not only a real person, but a significant person in their day and time, and specifically someone who represented them as a high priest before the Lord. Someone who took their sacrifices to the Lord that they might be made right with Him. And here he stands in this scene that Zechariah looks and watches unfold. Here he stands with two others in this space. Satan, the spiritual being, Satan next to him, and both of them are facing the angel of the Lord. Now one word sums up what this scene is all about, and it's the word accuse. Accuse. Satan is at his right hand, the text tells us, accusing him accusing Joshua. Now Satan, this fallen angel, this real spiritual being that we find throughout the Scriptures, is a lot of things, right? In Genesis 3, he is a deceiver. In Matthew 4, as he meets Jesus, the Son of God, he is a tempter. In 1 Peter 5, he's described as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. And in John 8, he is a murderer. He is a lot of things. But here we see what Satan literally means. His name literally means accuser. That's what Satan means. And so we might say that here he stands as the prosecutor. Joshua stands as the defendant, the accused, and the angel of the Lord, more than just a representative of God, but God Himself, the second member of the Trinity, sits in the seat of judgment. It's a tense scene, even without hearing the accusations that Satan is spewing. Just seeing it, very briefly described, we can imagine the tension. But then there's these further details that Zechariah sees and gives the Lord's people in verse 3. Joshua stands there, but he's filthy. He's clothed in filthy garments. And these aren't just grass stains, like mom didn't like those grass stains. But this is much worse than grass stains. The root of this Hebrew word carries with it the notion of human excrement. This is dirty. This is disgusting. But even more than that, what Joshua has on, these filthy garments, make him completely unfit for his work. 
He's defiled. Joshua is ceremonially unclean because Yahweh has stipulated and made clear that the priests, these intermediaries between God's people and Yahweh, those who intercede for them, were required to have a degree of holiness, a degree of cleanliness far beyond what he required of God's people. And here stands Joshua, covered in crap, filthy and silent. He's not saying anything. What does it all mean? What are the Jews who first heard this, who soaked in this scene? The message was crystal clear. Their priest... Their hope for fellowship with Yahweh, their representative was wholly unqualified. And therefore, they are as well. Of course, the 6th century Israelites knew that they had sinned. They remembered and repented of the sins of the previous generation. And in doing so, they returned to the Lord and the Lord returned to them. And that's the story that began us in Zechariah. The Jews knew they had sinned. And you see, that's why Joshua is silent. There's nothing to say. It's like when my formerly three-year-old daughter, won't say which one, denied that she ate the chocolate, but she came out and she had chocolate all over her cheeks. There's no defense to mount. Satan is over here railing, saying, who knows what? You call yourself a servant of God, Joshua, but look at you. You're filthy. You're unqualified. You're a guilty mess. You're a disgrace. And he knows Joshua knows he's not enough. Israel knows that they're not enough. And we know that we're not enough. We know that we've been found out. We know that we are guilty as charged. It's not that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but before God, we will always fall short. And that's why the Bible declares to us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we don't even need that pithy verse to know that. We have our own consciences. We have our own lives to unpack. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of the day will furnish him with material for his charges. Yesterday you were impatient, the day before you were proud, another day you were slothful, and another day you were angry. You fill in the blanks in your story. I can fill in the blanks of my own. We all have soiled pasts. Some are dirtier than others. Some are more recent than others. But Joshua is all of us. Standing before a holy God, He is not enough. You are not enough. Well, that's the bad news, but thankfully there's much more to unpack in this vision. And that leads us to the second truth. Jesus is more than enough. Now you can see why preachers love this passage. Jesus is more than enough. Not only is Jesus more than enough, but He makes you more than enough. 
What we see here in this vision is God's grace from its inception in election to its transformation in sanctification. You call yourself a follower of God. Satan's over here railing. The taunts and the accusations are flying. The evidence is piling up. There's no hiding from it. Satan loves to amplify our failures, doesn't he? The guilt and the shame are mounting until until our advocate steps in and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Shut your mouth. Stop talking. Stop talking to my servant. The judge silences the prosecution. Despite all the evidence, he makes it all inadmissible. And no charges can be brought. And we say, how? How can this even be possible? Well, the vision gives us two reasons. Verse 2, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? It's a wonderful word. The word election. Not grounded in anything that they've done. In fact, despite themselves, Yahweh has placed His love upon them. Right? Deuteronomy 7, that's how He chose Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. That He spoke about the nation of Israel. This He speaks about you, Jew and Gentile. In Ephesians chapter 1, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God didn't look in the future and see that you were going to be pretty neat. He didn't look in the future and see that you were going to be pretty smart and choose Him. No, it's grace. It's all grace. God's electing love and sovereign grace are the foundation of our standing. This is more than a judge turning a blind eye to his filth. God can't do that. So it's not just election, but it's this grace worked out through this exchange. This great clothing exchange. You see, Joshua needs more than forgiveness. He needs more than just a face wash. He needs a righteousness and a cleansing that he himself can't produce. And so the angel of the Lord says, give him new clothes. Clean clothes. What disqualified him now makes him beautiful. Isaiah 62.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, in this exchange of clothing built upon God's electing love, this silences the accuser and it secures Joshua's standing. Because God has always had a plan. He's always had a glorious plan of redeeming His people. 
And he hints at that plan here because it's coming through a branch and through a stone. The prophets had already spoken of the one referred to. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall exult justice in the land. Isaiah 11, people of Zechariah's day had these passages in their minds. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. A branch is coming. Zechariah sees and reminds the people, but not just a branch, but a stone. Isaiah 8 Verses 14 and 15, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stones were a part of the priestly garment. You can look that up in Exodus 28. Perhaps most notably was the ornament on the turban of the high priest which was inscribed with the words holy to the Lord. And this stone that Zechariah is shown has seven eyes. This number of completion and perfection. For instance, the lamb in Revelation chapter 5 has seven horns of power and seven eyes of complete wisdom and knowledge. And Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 2 as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so Jesus is the branch and Jesus is the stone that is given to His people. Jesus is what we need and Jesus is more than enough. That's what Zechariah is communicating this morning through this vision. You are not enough, but need not fear someone has come that is more than enough. So what does this mean for us going from this place? Well, three things. Three R's. First, it's a call to rest. He's saying, stop striving. The Gospel is rest. Look to God's provision. Look to the One who gives this garment, who is this garment. Look to the One who never sinned, but made Himself sin for you, that you might be the righteousness of God in a single day. Once and for all, Jesus dealt with your sin. He removed your iniquity past, present, and future. Jesus has made you more than enough. And so rest. We sing some great songs when condemnations rise, when failures fill my eyes remind me once again that my sufficiency is found upon that tree 
that bought my righteousness. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see Him there, the One who made an end to all my sin. So brothers and sisters, no matter what you've done, rest in the Gospel. And rejoice. Is the second R. Rejoice. Rejoice in this plan, in this incredible plan. In these promises, in this picture, God has had His heart on you for a long time. Rejoice in the Advocate who defends you. What a great picture. Revelation 12.10 says this, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. That final throwdown is coming. But every day, there's a rebuke happening. As Satan accuses, and as the Lord intervenes and says, stop it, they're mine. And then lastly, rest, rejoice, and renew. I think that's the last thing this passage calls us to do. Verse 7, the Lord makes it clear to Joshua and subsequently to His people that they have been made holy to serve. There's a purpose in this cleansing. right? And this is the first time that Joshua is charged to do something. And it is after his new clothes are given to him. It's after his change in status. That's an important point. After he has received this change in status, these new clothes, this robe of righteousness, he is then charged to walk in his ways, to rule his house, to keep his courts, all the while enjoying this access to the Lord afforded to him by God himself. Saved to serve and to share. Verse 10. In that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Vines and fig trees in the ancient Near East were signs of agricultural blessing. But more than that, they're they're signs of what this picture, this scene has accomplished, right? These are blessings too good to keep to oneself. And so we invite others to come to come enjoy this vine, to come enjoy this shade, to come enjoy this rest. You are not enough, but you don't need to be. You just need to be reminded to look to the One who has made you more than enough. It's the Gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this vision, this wonderful picture of what You have accomplished in us, Lord Jesus, as You came as the servant of God, the branch from the stump of Jesse, the stone that the builders rejected. You have come and have been for us our cleansing, our robe of righteousness. And indeed, we confess that too often we beat ourselves up 
We get on that treadmill of performance thinking that we need to earn your favor or we haven't done enough, we haven't measured up. Oh, Father, remind us once again of where our sufficiency lies and take us out of here with a spring in our step, with lightness in our step as we seek to invite others to know this rest, to know this goodness that is the Gospel, that is the work of Jesus on our behalf. And Father, if there are those here this morning that have never experienced the rest and the release of guilt and shame that comes through Jesus. The Holy Spirit, may today be the day of salvation for them as they lay down all of their strivings and as they come to You. Lord Jesus, the One who has done it all. Oh Father, may today be the day of salvation. Oh Father, do Your work in us We thank You for Your Word. Plant it deep in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.